They may have a cost principles in the short term, but in the long term, they always turn out to be a bargain. Welcome back to All In What's Shaken. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. Today, I have a really, really, really special guest for you. And notice I use three reallys because I'm, I'm really, really, really excited. My esteemed gentleman today is the pioneer for impact investment and described as the father of British venture capital and the father of social investment. He's the co-founder, director of Social Finance UK, USA, and Israel, and co-founder, chair of Bridges Fund Management and Big Society Capital. This is some incredible stuff here. He chaired the Social Impact Investment Task Force, established under the UK's presidency of the G8. If you don't know what the G8 is and the G12, look that up. It's fantastic. And in 2012, he received the Rockefeller Foundation's Innovation Award for Innovation in Social Finance, graduate of Oxford University, where he served as the director of the Investment Committee and has an MBA from Harvard Business School, where he is currently a member of the Board of Dean's Advisors. Sir Ronald Cohen, I'm honored to have you. Welcome. Pleasure, Rick. Great to be here with you. Awesome. And that's the only time I promise I'll, I'll use your, your regal title because you asked me to call you Ronnie, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Right. I'm excited. So uh, there's, a, there's a movement going on right now that I know you've really helped pioneer and it's called impact investments. Can you describe that for everyone, please? And really what your heart is around that? Sure, Rick. Uh, I mean, I think all of us are aware that the world can't continue in the way it's doing. Uh, we have mounting social issues, issues of social inequality and so on. And at the same time, we have mounting environmental issues. And part of the reason the main reason is that investment has been flowing to companies that seek to just find the balance between risk and return without worrying about the impact they have on people and planet. And impact investment is investment that takes this effect on people and planet into account in making decisions. And for me, it's a revolution like the tech revolution. The impact revolution is going to bring entrepreneurs that uh, develop new business models like Tesla uh, and, and like Elon Musk. They're going to disrupt once again whole sectors. Almost every sector is going to be transformed by the impact revolution. That's incredible. I love that you use the example of Tesla as well. And, you know, Apple, would you agree that Apple might be thrown into that mix, at least maybe in the past under the Steve Jobs reign? Certainly, certainly Apple delivers a lot of product impact. Uh, but Apple um, might not have had a specific social purpose in the way that, um, you know, that Tesla had an environmental purpose. So Tesla was created to solve a major issue. Fossil fuel dependence, correct? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's amazing. I, I love the the similarities in some of these companies. And, I, and I'm with you because uh, Steve Jobs, by all means, was an innovator. And he literally changed the world in the form of communication. But I was just on uh, with a, a gentleman the other day. He has a company called Smart Cups. 
And he looked at this, it's incredible because he, if you want to call it 3D printing, but he calls it printing flavoring on the inside of the cups. So then when you put tap water in there, you can do energy drinks, you can do sodas, you can even do medications. It's absolutely incredible. And the social impact that he's looking at solving is the literal transport of liquids, eliminating that. Because now instead of shipping energy drinks, you know, where you can fit maybe 20 cases of monster energy or, or Celsius energy, now all you have to do, you can ship 20 times as many cups and eliminate the transport of the water itself, and again, to just have a positive impact on the environment. Oh, here, here's a perfect business model whose aim is risk, return, and impact. He aims to make money. The more impact he delivers, the more money he makes. That is the business model of the future. And we're going to see the Steve Jobses and, uh, and the Gateses and, and others uh, in the form now of, uh, of impact entrepreneurs. And I, I like to say that an impact unicornary is a venture which isn't just worth a billion dollars. It's a venture that also improves the lives of a billion people. That's incredible. I see the shift in investors in this realm too. Do you see the same thing as, in that they're, of course you still have to look at the risk and the return, but now they're really starting to consider the impact, especially I believe after this last year. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a massive change in values. Uh, you find uh, particularly young people unwilling to buy the products of certain companies or to work for them because of the harm they do. Investors have become aware that uh, this has got big implications for the profitability of their investments, right? And so investors are now pushing $40 trillion of what's known as ESG, environmental, social, and governance investment, to achieve more than profit trick, to achieve impact on the environment, positive impact on the environment and on people. This is not a flash in the pan or a passing thing. This is a massive change in values. What's really driving this movement? Because you figure, I mean, even if I think back to the days, you know, in the United States, I think of the, the Bill Clinton and Al Gore presidency, that administration. And then after on, Al Gore went on to really be in just an advocate of our environment and how to, how to treat our planet better. You know, this has been around, my point is this has been around for a while, you know, but why now? Why is there this sudden change in this movement? I think um, uh, it's been going on for four decades in the environmental area. Al you know, got going four decades ago. But it's been at the level of governments. And getting governments to talk to each other about improving the environment hasn't yielded much. And I think people now realize this has got to be brought down to the level of companies. It's companies that are creating the pollution. And so you have these changing values we've talked about, and you have another trend, which is technologies that enable us now through artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality to deliver more impact globally than we've ever been able to do before, than humanity has ever been able to do. And then you have a third trend, which is technology that enables us to measure the impact of a company. 
through its employment, through its products, through its operations on people and on the environment. And this is coming because our problems are just getting bigger and bigger. And our system isn't helping to solve them. And young people began to realize that this is because everybody thinks only of themselves. And if you begin to think of others and you begin to think of the planet, then you make different choices. No doubt. You started in the really in what you do right now. I think I was reading somewhere around 1972, right? Where you really got going. Was that with Apex? Yeah. Yeah. I got going at the age of 26 when venture capital and entrepreneurship and tech was uh, just uh, in the air. Sure. When computers were still taking up whole rooms, entire rooms. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. During that time, I mean, when did you start to see the need to really drive the impact investment movement? Because back then, I'm sure you know, well, you were there, that everything was all about risk and return, only about risk and return. Well, except that my generation was the flower power uh, uh, generation of the 60s. It was an idealistic generation. And somebody said to me, you know, the millennial generation and Gen Z were taught by people from my generation. So maybe, maybe we skipped a couple of materialistic, uh, all about me um, generations. Uh, but I began in the venture business at the age of uh, 26 because I felt I had an opportunity to do good and do well at the same time. I could create jobs and make the British economy more competitive at a time when we had a very large number of unemployed. And it was never about making the maximum amount of money. It was always about making enough money so that I could devote my resources to doing the things that I really care about. And so I realized as I kept backing entrepreneurs who came from nothing uh, and, and, and helping them to make money and enrich those around them, that instead of closing the gap between rich and poor, this whole entrepreneurship gig was actually increasing the gap. And those who were born into the wrong type of family and got the wrong type of education and sometimes, you know, the wrong values, were just unable to get out of the misery uh, they were born in. And so I started to think about why this continues, and I realized that it continues because governments do their best, but governments aren't the most entrepreneurial. They don't like to think <laughs> You this. don't say. <laughs> right? And philanthropists yeah. do their best, but they, they don't have enough money. And so I realized that we have to bring investment to those who want to improve lives on the planet, not just to those who want to make money. And over time, I began to see that actually, because of the changing values we've been discussing, you make more money if you, as Tesla is showing, uh, you create more value if you balance risk, return, and impact, and aim for, you know, aim for all three than you do if you just aim for two, risk and return. I love that. There's a, there's a phrase I've always used, you know, because you've probably heard of the serve first, you know, you could call it impact first. 
And I've always tagged onto that with one of my own phrases, because when you're talking, hey, you're going to make money after you have the impact. I've always said, serve first and the money will always follow. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I must say, it's been my philosophy. I thought if I do my job well as a venture capitalist, the money will follow. But today, as the example you were giving uh, with, with the transportation of water unnecessarily uh, shows, today, we have the ability with entrepreneurship and, and, and technology and the change in values, we have the ability to create companies that seek to solve intractable problems. So some of them are environmental, and Tesla is an example of how you can go about it. Some of them are social, improving people's education, improving people's health. Uh, improving their ability to get finance if uh, they don't have a bank account and if uh, they haven't gone to the right school, but if they're regular people who honor their, their commitments, doing it on the back of you know, an, uh, uh, an analysis of their usage of their phone uh, and how reliable they are and so on. So we have an ability now to create business models that are designed to solve problems while making money. And what's interesting about it, Rick, is when you begin to think in those terms, you begin to access much greater markets at lower price levels. And so you can change billions of people's lives and you can make a ton of money at, you know, at the same time. But because you're seeking to do something which is aimed at people other than yourself, because it's something bigger than yourself. You can attract the best talent, you can attract customers who are more loyal and investors who are more loyal. That's so exciting. You, know, you take a look at entrepreneurship, and, and I've always seen it from my perspective, that entrepreneurs always have a solution but there might not even be a problem that exists. So it's almost like they come up with the idea and then they create the problem in order to fit the solution, but it's always money first because they have the solution that they have to sell. And the shift you're talking about, I believe, is saying, hey, instead of having, <laughs> instead of having the problem or start having the solution and leading with that, why don't we lead with the right questions? Why don't we lead with, with the impact first? Because then the solution will just completely present itself if we just focus on really being present in the now. Absolutely. I want to give you a quick example. I'm sitting here in Tel Aviv, and here in Israel, there's a lot of technology, as you know, but there's a fantastic uh, impact entrepreneur. Fantastic entrepreneur sold his company to Intel for $15 billion before. He wanted to help the blind because his aunt was going blind. So he designed a pair of spectacles with a little device on the side that whispers into your ear the page of the book you're reading or the newspaper article or the banknote in your hand. Now, you'd say, wow, what a fantastic impact venture. Uh, 35 million blind people will benefit from this, but there are also 250 million visually impaired people. But now think like an impact entrepreneur. You ask yourself the question, how this, can this technology improve the biggest numbers of lives? 
And you get a surprising answer, Rick. What if you provided these spectacles to the 800 million illiterate adults in the world? What would that do for their lives and their livelihoods, for their economies, for the world economy? And then all of a sudden, you're talking about a market of 1.1 billion people instead of 300 million. So thinking in terms of impact leads you to unearth opportunities that normal uh, people wouldn't begin to look at if they were only thinking of making money. I love that perspective. Because you know, I'm in the middle of, a, of an IPO myself. We're filing with the SEC here in just a couple of weeks. And it, it's a cybersecurity roll-up, you know, because of, of all the other IT providers that are out there that don't necessarily have the competency. But in that, the, the first, of course, the money is going to be there. But coming out of this past year, I saw the opportunity where a lot of the, the small business owners that are in this field are really struggling. You know, and they might even only be taking home maybe fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year, and unable to even pay their mortgage, put food on their table. So the impact that I'm looking at is saying, why don't we make this conglomerate? You know, because there's no nationwide play that exists for cybersecurity in the United States or even in North America right now. There's a bunch of smaller private companies, and then we can actually fold them in to this larger umbrella and give them their steady paycheck so that they can live out a fulfilled life in that and also contribute to the mission of protection. You know, that's what drives me forward, man, because I, I, I was broke 12 years ago, you know, with two newborn twins that couldn't even pay for the power to stay on. And I look at myself and all of these other people and, and saying, hey, you know, if there's a better way, if I can forge the path for you, just come on right behind me and let's rock this together. Fantastic. Well, you know, I came to Britain as a refugee from Egypt at the age of 11. I couldn't even speak English. I was welcomed. I was helped. My education was paid for by, by the state at school and, and, and at university. I was lucky to get a scholarship to Harvard Business School. Like you, I've been lucky in life. And like you, I feel a desire to give a break for other people, too to help other people in turn. Now, you'll be amazed at the ventures that are around today that are seeking to achieve impact. Uh, there are ventures to keep people in their homes, in their old age, and enable them at the same time to pay for all the things they need. People are living longer, and, and, and so they could live for decades after they've stopped working, and their pension may not be enough. There are companies that are dealing with the creating neighborhoods where people help each other and have a relationship with each other. There are platforms, financial platforms, that help people manage their expenditure better, begin to save. When you own something, you begin to think differently. When you're under pressure, you make bad decisions. And then you have ventures in education and in health, which are you know, which are unbelievable too. And I think this is what's going to mark the next revolution, this impact revolution, these new types of business models, because they're going to disrupt the activities of those who only think about making money. And they're going to be overtaken by these new firms. I love that. Is this what you mean when you talk about the invisible heart of the market? Yeah, I mean, the uh, famous uh, economist uh, Adam Smith 
had this uh, image of the invisible hand of the market, which is if all of us on this uh, call uh, try to make the most money, it'll be best for all of us together. But impact brings the invisible heart of the market to guide their invisible hand. You don't just look at making money. You look at making money and improving the lives of people. And actually, Adam Smith was prouder of his first book, which is how human beings act out of empathy for other people and altruism that leads them to want to help um, just as much as, as they do uh, by a desire to make money and secure a roof over their heads and uh, enable them to buy the things they, they need or desire. That's incredible. I, I like to look at humanity and I, I truly believe that there's good in everybody. You know, and, and the desire to serve other people and have impact in, in the world. What do you feel it is? Because it, this is something that I always try to grapple with in my head. You know, in, in my my book that I have out is situational ethics. You know, and, and the premise of the entire book is that ethics is almost always an economic proposition. You know, so when someone makes the decision and it's based on finances, a lot of times I'll see their, their ethics sway in that moment or compromise just because of, of the money that's involved or the lack of money that's involved in their scenario. Totally. So I had a, a, a saying at Apex, principles have a cost, but they're always a bargain in the end. Whenever you pass, on a shortcut that isn't the right thing ethically or is marginal ethically, whenever you go to a situation where you make money but you create harm along the way and you decide to pass on it, there's an immediate cost, obviously. But if you think in terms of the long run, you're doing all this wanting to become successful because you want to be proud of what you've achieved in your life. You're not doing this just to amass as much money as you can. You don't give a damn what people think about you. And also, there is such a thing as karma in life. If you I do fully agree right with that, thing, yes. <laughs> you do the right thing, other people begin rooting for you and you begin to get help from unexpected places and you do better too. So I agree with you uh, that there is a tension, but always remember this, they may have a cost principles in the short term, but in the long term, they always turn out to be a bargain. I, uh, I think of Warren Buffett too, because it's not even just the, when you're talking about the principles have a cost, a lot of times it's not even a financial cost. It could be an emotional cost or a mental cost. You know, yeah. sometimes a physical cost in your principles. I think of Warren Buffett, who's probably very apropos to bring up on a call with you, is there's a, an article I saw maybe just a couple of weeks ago, and a phrase that he always used was, you can always tell somebody to go to hell tomorrow <laughs> because the opportunity is never going to pass you by. <laughs> That exactly. was incredible. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. It's also interesting because, I mean, he has some interesting scenarios even about Bitcoin right now as well, you know, that, that I've been reading about. And I know his, I'm curious on your take because 
Warren Buffett talks about, you know, Bitcoin is not being anything worthwhile at all because it's not really physical, tangible, you know, and I'm sure he's even referring to the the days before there were digital stock certificates and he could physically feel the his wealth in his hand. You know, how do, how do you feel about that? So I, I, I think the jury's out on Bitcoin. Uh, it's interesting that it started out with young people who were, you know, thinking differently from their own generation even, so they seem to be a bit the mavericks to, to others. But today, uh, very serious investors are investing in, in, in Bitcoin. And the reason seems to be that uh, there's a supply and demand phenomenon here, uh, which means that uh, the supply being greater than the demand, the price keeps rising. At the same time, we're living through a period that has the characteristics of a bubble. And the bubble, in, whether it be in your glass or in a champagne glass, <laughs> rises, rises and rises, and then, you know, and then it bursts. So <clears throat> I think the jury is out, but some very serious people are investing in Bitcoin now. Yeah, I'm curious as far as how long they'll ride that bubble to, when the jumping off point will be. I've talked with a lot of other experts in in investing as well in the markets, and they all feel the same thing about Bitcoin. I don't think they're they quite side as hardcore with Warren Buffett saying that it's completely worthless because I, I come back to what we're talking about today. What's the impact involved in Bitcoin? Because there was some genuine goals or motives behind that was to almost take the if you want to use the phrase common people to remove them from centralized banking. That way they're not strapped by the rules and regulations. Yeah, exactly. And initially it got a bit of a bad name because it seemed to be used by people who were trying to avoid rules and regulations. No doubt. And being in cybersecurity, it does have a, a definitive bad name because all of the ransoms that are paid for the ransomware that lock down entire large enterprises, you have to pay those in Bitcoin. There is a, there is a stigma around it for sure. Yeah, and so and so the supply and demand for it may be driven by quite negative uh, trends, uh, you know, black money of one kind or or another that is trying to escape uh, to escape uh, regulation, and maybe having you know having pushed it up, other people come in who are more reputable and put uh, serious money in, but it's gone much further than. I thought it could go in, in, you know, in this time frame, and there are people saying it can go to a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand. But the same, the same is, is is true of a lot of companies today whose prices no longer prices on the stock market. I mean, their share price no longer really reflects the economic power uh, of of the company. It's like People are betting on every horse in the race as if it was a favorite. And we've been <laughs> there before. We were there in 99 and 2000, and it ended in tears. Uh, but many companies made it through 99 and 2000 and became the Apples and Microsofts and Googles and Facebooks and, you know, and so on, although some of those started afterwards. But a lot of companies which are today among the biggest in you know, in the world, made it through that crisis. 
So the bubble is affected by the expectations of some great companies, uh, which are going to be fulfilled, but uh, they're just uh, spread uh, with a very thick brush across anything that looks so sexy in a, in, in a similar way. No doubt. And what's a little tragic that I see is that when you're talking about the 99-2000 bubble, you know, the, the dot-com era as it was, the ones that made it through, even from an investment perspective, the ones that I saw were the ones that were also very well diversified. So they could absorb the the losses, the, the heavy losses from the companies that didn't make it. Because you said, you know, the apples made it through. The apples of the world made it through. Yeah. But they were one in a thousand you know, <laughs> made it through that time period. Uh, no, you have to be diversified as an investor. I totally agree with you. This is not the time to put all of your savings on the back of one sexy opportunity, however sexy it may seem to you. Yeah, and that's what's happening too. I've been reading about people taking out second mortgages on their homes, on their primary residence, just to dump it into something like Bitcoin or even GameStop, you know, as that. What's your take on that? Because that was a, as we transition there, the the David and Goliath scenario, right? (laughs) I've read it. I'm sure you monitored that closely. Yeah, well, look, I think it's an interesting uh, phenomenon that individuals, small investors can band together to punish uh, uh, hedge funds, uh, which are selling companies short. Uh, Selling short has, you know, has some positive aspects in terms of liquidity in the market and so on and, and so forth. But it's not an activity that is creating wealth. It's not like investing in an entrepreneurial company that improves everybody's life. So the fact that technology enables us today to gang up on on ways of acting uh, of which we don't approve, I think is a very important Phenomenon. It's a form of uh, popular activism uh, that we've never, uh, at least not in my living memory, um, seen uh, uh, before. But the second aspect of it is it's a game that you're bound to lose. So if you drive the price of a stock to the stratosphere and the company doesn't justify that valuation, somebody's going to sell it short at the top. You know, the people that you fought against at the bottom are going to sell it at the top and they're going to make money on the way down and you're going to lose it. So I'm a bit worried about who in the end is going to end up paying for this. uh... Oh, sure. And that's what we saw, too. I mean, when it rose to the top, sure, you know, there were some hedge funds that went bankrupt out of this scenario. But then there's also people, human beings that are now without homes. Because of the scenario, too. That's the tragic part of it. I, I'm all for that because it, it was a lot of, uh, it was mostly, you were talking about millennials and how that generation, you know, t- taught by the, the flower generation, as you called it, they are the ones that really were on Reddit and Wall Street bets and really jumped into this hardcore on the GameStop scenario. And then, of course, pumped AMC trying to do the same thing. Oh, you can understand why, right? Rick? Oh, yeah. People are sitting at home, they're not earning. Uh, they see huge fortunes being created on the stock market. Yeah. And of course, they're tempted to get on the bandwagon and, you know, make, make a fortune themselves. 
But uh, it, you know, it's a game of musical chairs when you get into a situation like this. And when the music stops, which it does, a horde of people are going to be left standing without chairs. For sure. What was he? Because we talked a little bit about 1999 and 2000. You know, we just kind of brushed over this. This is interesting to me because the the markets, at least in the U.S., that I can speak to, they're sky high. You know, even after the the unrest, the civil unrest that the United States experienced over the past year, really with the pandemic and then the the presidential election, still they came out sky high. And to me, I I am not an experienced investor. You know, I I like to read many many different perspectives on things, but when I start to see commonalities, that's where I get either excited or I get scared. <laughs> and I, I'm looking at the market right now, and I see things a little shaky. When a lot of people are saying, "Oh, it's a bull market," but I I see the bear like coming out of hibernation soon. You know what uh, usually happens is uh, smart money goes in and drives up the price of some stocks. And then people notice that, and less sophisticated people think, wow, what a great opportunity. And they start investing, and they're buying the shares of the smart people who are getting out of them. So there's an element of that in every, in every bubble. Are you and saying the, it's like a trailing effect? It's a... Uh, it's not a trading effect, it's a smart money getting out and less smart money going in. Gotcha. You know? And, and so the, there are some companies which have very deeply entrenched positions, are continuing to do well and will continue to do well, you know, in terms of their profits and growth. And they may come down a bit, but you can, you can help them through the crisis. But the companies that don't perform, that don't have profits, that don't have enough cash to make it beyond the, you know, the bursting of uh, the bubble, uh, are, are going to be left, unfortunately, in very difficult circumstances uh, to raise money and, and, and fail to do so. So I think, you, I think you have to be careful. You have to be diversified. You mustn't put everything in high-risk things. You mustn't borrow against your home and take those types of, uh, of, of, of risks. Uh, we're in, you know, in potentially very volatile territory. Now, what's driven it is the fact that for a decade now, our governments have been trying to avoid an economic crisis by making money plentiful and cheap. And so when you do that, you drive the value of every asset. You drive the value of your home, you drive the value of stock, uh, of stocks and, and, you know, and shares, uh, and, and so on. Uh, when governments start to charge, you know, raise interest rates, and banks and, and others uh, start to charge more, uh, then you begin to see the down cycle. And in the down cycle, you see a lot of these values uh, begin to shrink, or you begin to see inflation uh, come in, and uh, the real value of these assets uh, falls. So this is a time to be prudent, Rick, I think is what we're saying. If you're an entrepreneur, 
and you have a great idea, it's a fantastic time to raise money. If you have the opportunity to go public, as you're doing, this is a fantastic time to be able to do it. As an investor, be discriminating and be diversified. Don't just spray and pray. <laughs> it's been a while since I've heard that phrase, and it always makes me laugh because it's so accurate too. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I'll uh, I'll get your take on this, and then we we can wrap things up. But the in my I'm I have a private placement round right now before our IPO. You know, to to help jumpstart things. And there, when we're talking about money being so cheap, as you as you said, an investor was looking about to put in somewhere around two million into the private placement. And I'm like, that's great. That'll fund about four acquisitions right out of the gate. It's incredible. And then he starts processing out loud and saying, Well, I could go borrow this, and this is the interest rate. And I said, Time out, time out. <laughs> that's not the kind of money that I'm looking for. If you don't have the cash to put in right now, the the liquid cash to put in, I don't want to see your investment leveraged because it tells me two things. It says that you probably don't really have the money. And second, if if there's a bubble, even though there's a restriction period on the private placement, of course, of 12 months, still that individual is going to be looking to get out as fast as possible because their investment is leveraged. And of course, that's $2 million we're talking, but then we compare it to the Bitcoin rise and the GameStop rise and people leveraging their homes. The principle I see is still the same. It's not the route to go. Totally, totally, totally. I think uh, people get carried away and make mistakes. And uh, they pay very dearly for these mistakes when the time comes. And you always have a new generation of people, Rick, who think that uh, the only way forward is up. Uh, But life shows that everything is a cycle. Everything is a cycle. You cycle up and you cycle and you cycle down. And sooner or later, things turn. I may go back up after a number of years, uh, but in the meantime, it goes down. And when it goes down, you can get your margin call and you can't pay it and you sell your house because you gave it uh, as collateral. No doubt. I love seeing the, the graphs you know, of, of the successful companies to where you see those cycles where they come down. But there's always a floor, it seems, you know, to, to the successful companies because they're able to weather those storms and you see them ticking up and then they'll drop a little bit and then you see them start to trickle back up gradually again. And they might even go gangbusters at some points, but then they'll, they'll drop slightly, but they never drop below those marks. It's incredible. And also in difficult times, Rick, as you well know, there's a flight to quality. And so even if these very solid companies with big growth prospects go down a bit in price, people will go into them. People, pension funds, insurance companies, high net worth individuals are running away from these small companies which didn't have much substance. Some of them do, but many don't, Um, didn't have much substance and they started to fall and people get out of them and then what do they do with their money? They look for a safe haven. They look for a company with solid prospect. So you're right. If you go into a company with great prospect, it, it'll weather the crisis much better. It won't go down as much, and it will recover sooner for, the, for this reason. 
I'm looking forward to those days because you can see some of those winners coming out ahead of this, like Tesla, like we first started talking about at the beginning. You know, there, there's some interesting things with them, of course, since they put 1.5 billion in a Bitcoin and now they are starting to even accept that as a form of payment. That's also interesting to me. So we have interesting times ahead, my friend. We certainly do. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Delighted. Delighted. And for all of those who are interested in Impact Rig, I want to mention that uh, my book is available in the United States. I've knocked the ebook price right down because I want everyone to be able to afford it. All of the royalties are going to Impact Charities. Awesome. But if you're interested in Impact, you've mentioned the book, you've read it. If you're interested in Impact, then read it and spread the word about it and if you're an entrepreneur go out and create an impact venture you got it everybody listening and watching look in the show notes because the link directly to ronnie's book will be right there for you and i i completely endorse and would love you to read it and then share the comments too so ronald cohen thank you so much my friend what's shaking thank you for joining me on the all-in podcast Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me, 312-535-8520. Follow me on social media, at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode. I am Rick Jordan, and I approve this message.